Raise your hand if you're an elementary school student. I want you to imagine something with me. Like, look at your mom or your dad or if, if, you're, if you're with your family and just understand in your imagination you're not living with them anymore. In fact, you're not living with anybody. You're pretty much, you're outside in, living in a park somewhere. You're homeless. Picture yourself, you're living on the street. Maybe you get your food from a trash can or from a dumpster somewhere. You beg on the street for someone to give you something to eat and you're, you're cold in the winter and you're really hot in the summer and you don't know where your, your home is. You don't have a home. Picture yourself, you don't even know where your parents live anymore. Is this scary yet? Okay, so you are out on your own. You don't have a whole lot of friends. You don't know where your family is. And you've been gone a long time. Okay, how many high schoolers do we have in here? Let's, let's say you guys have been in this station in life since you were six years old. You've been out on the street. You don't know where your parents are. You don't know where home is. You barely remember anything about it. And somewhere in the back of your head, there's this hope that maybe there is a place where you can actually belong, but you don't know where that is. And you don't know how to get there. But you, you meet people out in the street and in the park where you sleep and in the dumpster where you live, and you meet people that say, you know, you ought to go home. And you say, well, that sounds good, but I don't know how to get home, and I don't even know if my parents want me anymore. And they say things like, well, think about all the great food you would get if you went home. And you think, well, I am pretty hungry. You know, I mean, this dumpster food isn't all that great sometimes. And then they say, if you went home, you'd have your own room. And you think, room? Like, and they say, yeah, like your own room. You'd have your own room, and you'd have a bed to sleep in. And you think, oh, I don't know what a bed is. I mean, I barely have a blanket. And, like, are you saying I could have food and my own place to stay and a, and a safe, like, inside? Yeah, you could do that. You could, go, you could go home, and you could have your own room with a lot of food. And you think, ah, oh, I don't know. I don't even know what that looks like anymore. I've been gone so long. And then somebody else says, you know, if you went home, you could have all the toys that you could ever want. You, can, you could get your game system, and they're like, what's a game system? I don't know what a game You could watch TV. You could do all kinds of uh, fun things at home. You got maybe a trampoline in the backyard. And you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about right now, but it sounds really cool. And then somebody says, if you went home, I, he's like, I know your parents, and your parents have lots of money. And you thought, well, that's good, too, because I don't have any money. And I can't even afford to, you know, to get a, a food to, to, to eat, or I can't afford a place to stay. And, and, you're, and this person's saying, you, you think my parents have a lot of money? Oh, yeah, your parents are loaded. Your parents are rich. They live in a huge house, and you can have your own room with a lot of food and lots of toys. And then somewhere in the back of your head, you think that all sounds really, really good, but all you really want, all your deepest longing really needs is that you love your mom and dad and that you, you think and you hope that your mom and dad love you. And somewhere 
in your childlike reasoning, you think, I don't care about the food. I, I don't care if I have to sleep on the porch. I don't care if they have a lot of money or if I have lots of stuff or whatever. I just want to go home and see my parents. In this series on heaven, we talk about the things of heaven and what it might look like. There's, there's wording and there's verbiage in describing this kingdom and describing this wonderful place where God is. And we get, sometimes we get hung up on the things. We talk about treasure, we talk about crowns, and we talk about mansions. There are entire sermons and movements of Christianity based on selling heaven for what it can give you. Let's talk about treasure first. It's what I might call the compensation view of heaven. It's the reparations. Like you had such a hard time here on earth, you're going to get it big time in heaven. You're going to fill your treasure box. You're going to get all kinds of good stuff when you're there. Man, it's going to be so great, all this stuff you're going to get. I remember as a, as a teenager going to church camp, and there was a preacher that just basically took Revelation 21 and described this heavenly city, this new Jerusalem, and all of the golden streets and all of the, the foundations of, of precious stones and the, the pearly gates that were the size of a house. And he just went through all of these things one after another, and then he tried to monetize it. He tried to come up with like cubic feet of gold and how much that's worth per ounce and how many quadrillion dollars or whatever it was worth. And he was trying to sell us heaven because it was so valuable in American dollars. And I thought, I think you just cheapened it, but okay. It's a, great, it's a wonderful place. It's a marvelous place, but it's, you're, you're, you're appealing to my greed here for what I can get. That approach focuses on what heaven is said to be looking like or made of, not who lives there and who made it possible for you to go. I don't know, you remember the old Negro spiritual going to shout all over God's heaven? It's funny what you want heaven to be based on what you don't have right now. Because the old Negro spiritual, the slaves used to sing, I got shoes, you got shoes. All of God's people got shoes. When I get to heaven, I'm going to put on my shoes. I'm going to walk all over God's heaven. When you don't have shoes, which they didn't, you want shoes when you get there because that's a luxury. Anybody not have any shoes in here? I got shoes. You got shoes. All of God's people got shoes right here. When I get to heaven, I don't need shoes. I want to go barefoot. I don't know about you, but... <laughs> yeah. It's that idea, you know, there's other verses, you know, I got a robe and you got a robe and I got a harp and you got a harp and I'm going to play on my harp. And I don't know, there's something about treasure that gets me thinking of me. Jesus said in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And in his book on heaven, Randy Alcorn says, many Christians dread the thought of leaving this world. Why? Because so many have stored up their treasure on earth, not in heaven. And each day brings us closer to death. If your treasures are on earth, that means each day brings you closer to losing your treasures. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, T 
teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud, not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly provides all we need for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, what's the result? Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Rick Warren paraphrased that when he said, the way you store up treasure in heaven is by investing and getting people there. Where is your treasure when you think of heaven? Is it a what or a who? So that's treasure. Let's talk about crowns. There's all kinds of crowns in the Bible. Lots of crowns in the New Testament. First is a crown of thorns. Let's not forget about the crown of thorns, okay? There is, in 2 Timothy 4, a crown of righteousness. In James 1, there's a crown of life. In 1 Peter 5, he talks about a crown of glory, which is borrowing from Psalm 8, when the psalmist says that the humans were crowned with glory and honor. Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 9 a crown that will last forever. And and then Paul describes his crown as his fellow believers in Philippians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 2. And in Revelation 3, Jesus, in talking to one of these churches, says, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Well, what are they supposed to hold on to? What are they supposed to hold on to so no one can take their crown? They're supposed to hold on to their stuff, to their treasure on earth? Are they supposed to hold on to their possessions or their homes or their businesses? Are they supposed to hold on to all these things? No. They're supposed to hold on to their persecutions and, and to the things that have, well, been a crown of thorns for them. I think they're supposed to hang on to each other as their crown as they move around day by day, they hold each other close. They're supposed to hang on to the righteousness given to them through Christ. They have glory and honor given to them by Jesus. That's the crown. That's life eternal. But even in our day, when you see someone with a crown on, what's that signify? Well, they're royalty. They're a king or they're a queen or they're somehow victorious, like in the ancient days of the Olympics, they would crown the victors instead of putting the medal around their neck. They got a wreath, a crown. Hang on to that kind of thing. And so it's honor. It's being exalted. And when you think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, what exactly was their purpose, according to the Scripture? What did God give them to do? Being made in God's image, Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them and said... Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and rule over it. Subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea. Rule over the birds of the air. Rule over every living creature that moves along the ground. And Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work it, and to take care of it. God gave men and women the responsibility to work the garden to care for creation, to rule and reign over God's good earth as they filled it with more and more of themselves. 
Anybody read the Chronicles of Narnia? You've seen the movie, maybe? Okay. C.S. Lewis got this concept when he wrote about the four main human characters, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. They were called the kings and queens of Narnia. They were called the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve by the Narnians. Lewis knew from the scriptures that humans were created to rule over God's world and care for it. The crown isn't just a prize and a happy meal. It's not just something you get at Burger King to throw away later. And it's not, doesn't have more jewels in it because you've gone through more hard things and you've done more for Jesus than anybody else. These are all things we say, but we don't mean. For humans, for men and women, the crown isn't just a reward. It's what you were always meant to wear. Do you know who you are? Your royalty. You've been crowned with glory and honor. You've been put a little lower than all the angels, and you've been breathed into you the breath of life. You are sons and daughters of the king if you are in Christ. The enemy's convinced you otherwise. The enemy says you don't deserve a crown because you've been bad. The enemy says you deserve a really big, nice one because you've been so good. Both are lies. You've been given this role. The crown is standard issue. It's our intended vocation as sons and daughters of the king, as queens and kings in God's good world. I told you before I started this series, I was probably going to make some of you upset <laughs> or rock your world a little bit and coming at these things, challenging our cultural understandings, even some of our memories and, and the music that we sing. The hard part is, so many people have ideas about heaven that don't even include Jesus. Some versions of the afterlife are all about them. It's the reward they'll get. It's the treasure that they have in mind. It's the mansion that Jesus has built for them. The loved ones they'll see or the dog or the cat they lost years before. And I'm not saying that any of those things are bad. But they're obviously less important than Jesus. I mean, you've got to dance with the one who brung you. This is not to say there aren't good things to look forward to. Which brings me to my last word. Mansions. John 14. Words have meaning. And words evolve. And back when William Tyndale and, and all those guys wrote the first English versions of the Bible, in the King James especially, they came to John 14 and they saw the word meno. Everyone say meno. Okay? Not minnow. That's a fish. Meno is a dwelling place. It's a room. A meno is a place where people live. And in church traditions even today, the house that the preacher lives in, sometimes it's called a parsonage, other times it's called a manse. It's a variation on meno, where Jesus says, in my father's house are many of these. Jesus references my father's house. Well, my memory goes back when Jesus said my father's house. He's, in Luke 2, he's talking about his father's house. His father's business is the temple right there in Jerusalem. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's, about my father's business? And so 12-year-old Jesus called it his father's house. And there's many rooms in that temple. 
Archaeologically, there were lots of rooms that were built for storage, for hospitality, for those who worked there. There's lots of places for you to stay while you're at the temple doing these temple responsibilities. But Jesus takes that image and he just blows it completely, infinitely bigger. Does he mean a spiritual place where, where, God's, where God is? Yeah, I think it could be both of those things. But when he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, Let's not import our 21st century real estate picture of a mansion and greed for more square footage, okay, into that picture. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you where? To your new house? No, to myself. That where I am, you also can be. Jesus' main point was to comfort his disciples. He's leaving. He told them. And he's, they're very upset. And he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Trust in God. Trust also in me. I'm coming back to get you. I'm preparing a place for you. And he goes, that place is with me. Let's take a look at the whole conversation. I think sometimes we stop. And we need to keep reading. Verse 16 he said, the Father will give you a helper. And I will come to you. He will abide with you and be in you. Now he's mixing his pronouns here. The Father will give you a helper. I will come to you. He will abide with you and be in you. Is Jesus coming or is the Spirit? Uh-huh. In verse 23, we come, we, Jesus said, we will come to that person and make our dwelling our meno with him. Our room will be with him. Same word as rooms earlier in the chapter. Meno is abide. Mona is room. Why the different wording? I don't know. The phrase, I'm going away, I'm coming back to you, verse 28. This isn't a lecture about the nature of the afterlife. This is Jesus just saying, I'm going to go away, but I'm coming back. You're not going to see me, but then I'm going to be with you. And in the end, you'll be where I am. And I really think that's the whole point. The point is not how big a house you're going to have in that heavenly city. That's appealing to our fleshly nature, our want for things and our comfort zone. What we really need is to be reminded of who it is we're going to be with, not where it is we're going to stay. Because where we stay is all about who we're with. The whole point of heaven is being with Jesus. If your idea of heaven doesn't have Jesus as the center, if Jesus is the center here, he's definitely the center in that eternity. If your idea of heaven doesn't have Jesus as the first and the foremost and the center, you've got some thinking to do. And if you really don't enjoy, if you can get into the presence of God here, I should say, if you reject the presence of God in your life here and you expect to go to that place someday. I had a long talk with a, with a, a young man who uh, had a real problem with the idea that God would send anyone to hell, and we'll get there. But my point of bringing this up now is that I asked him, you have a problem with God sending people to hell. But I ask him, do you want to be with God? Do you want anything to do with God? 
right now? And he goes, no, I really don't. I said, then you've chosen. Why would you want to be in heaven for eternity with the God you don't want to deal with right now? Why would you want that? Hell is where people go who reject Jesus, not where God sends. I'm getting ahead of myself. But this life reflects, your heart not right now reflects what your eternity, the direction of your eternity. If you don't enjoy, if you don't seek God's presence here, why would you want to be with him forever in a perfect place? And if you don't enjoy people here, other Christians here, I love this poem, to dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory, but to dwell below with saints we know. Now, that's another story. This is practice. This is where we warm up. This is kingdom come. His will be done on earth, and then we'll get to heaven. So if there's things that are keeping you from fellowship with Jesus, if there are things who are keeping you apart from God's own people, then I think what we really need is to focus on building God's kingdom here to prioritize God the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit's ministry right here among us. Treasures, crowns, Big mansions? Oh, yeah, maybe. And that's okay. But Jesus said in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And you know what? All this other stuff will be added to you as well. Let's keep first things first. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you'd help us prioritize our, our wants and our desires and forgive us when we even look at eternity with ourselves in mind. And this, uh, this, this reality of heaven, it reminds us of your great love, how you made it possible for us to know you, to be where you are, and you intentional about coming to be with us. And I pray right now that you would do that. Through your Holy Spirit, you would make your presence known in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.